we come now to that time in which we consider uh, God's word. Um, our passage is First Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven. And uh, just before I read that, let me just uh, remind you that uh, we're continuing in the book of First Timothy. Um, we could be speaking each week to our fears and our concerns and always looking uh, to these kinds of things, but we've chosen to continue to work through the book of First Timothy because um, this time that we're going through will not last. That is to say that we're in a present crisis, even if it's a worldwide crisis, even if the new normal afterwards will look significantly different than what it looks like now. Um, the height of this crisis and the depth of this crisis like all earthly crises, will come to an end. Your church has weathered these storms all through history because of the providence and promises of God. And what has kept your church focused on its mission has been not the external circumstances surrounding it, but the continued abiding in the truth of your word. And so that is why we choose to continue to work through the book of 1 Timothy, a book designed not just to Timothy, but designed to uh, keep the church focused on its purpose, on its mission, so that it continue to bear witness to the truth that God has given to us. So First Timothy chapter 3, reading these first seven verses. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we come to this passage of your word, we pray as we pray regularly and faithfully that you, your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. Guide us into your truth, uh, open up our minds to a clear understanding, and then motivate our hearts to want to uh, embrace and adopt your word as, as truly that which directs us and how we live, that which feeds us spiritually, and that which continues to motivate us to look to the grace of Christ in everything that we do. And so we ask, may your Holy Spirit be present with us as we come to this passage of your word of God this morning, for Christ's sake, amen. I want to begin this morning with a glance uh, ahead a little bit in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to verses 14 and 15. Uh, this is where Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that, um, so that you, so that if I am delayed, or if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, what ought to 
catch our attention about Paul's statement is how he connects the right conduct of the truth, how the church is supposed to behave, how the church is supposed to conduct its ministry, how the church operates, um, maybe how the church is led and serve, serves. He ties all of this to the description of the church as the pillar and buttress. Many translations will say foundation, foundation of the truth. He ties those things together. In other words, if you want to find truth in this world, forget the greatest philosophies of history. Forget the most recent theories of modern physics. Don't think you'll find it at Harvard University. But look to the message and the scriptures which belong to those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, what belongs to the church. So in light of what Paul says here, can we have a ho-hum attitude about how the church is structured and organized? Well, not really, because a, a ho-hum kind of attitude, a kind of uh, indifference to how the church is organized and structured really misses the seriousness and significance of the fact that Christ has designed the structure of the church for the good of the church in order to promote and protect the very purposes of the church for which he died. Now, with respect to seriousness, the seriousness is found in the fact that there are fierce wolves and twisted teachers out there who want to come against the church. We find this mentioned in Paul's first recorded message to the Ephesians. We've, we've looked at this before. It's in Acts chapter 20. But specifically, I want you to consider verses 29 and 30. Paul writes these words. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So, Fierce wolves, twisted teachers, twin dangers of men who are going to wage war, spiritual warfare against the good of the church. Now, with respect to significance, Paul anticipates this double danger by what he says to the elders. This is actually in the previous verse. It's the earlier verse, verse 28. So what he says to the elders in light of this double danger is this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the answer to what endangers the flock of Christ is faithful elders, elders who oversee the flock, elders who do the faithful work of faithful shepherds. Now, that is why we can't have a lazy or indifferent attitude about how the church is organized and how the church is led spiritually. There is a God-given design in order to protect and to promote the church and the mission of the church, the church, the very church, which Jesus Christ bought with his own blood. So this morning, my main concern is to, to look at the fact that there's this double danger and to then recognize uh, how the structure of the church that, that we have here addresses that kind of danger. So I can state it this way. Because of wolves from the outside and twisted teachers from within, Christ has given to his church shepherds who are to oversee the care of the flock. And I want to approach the the, the text this morning from, from that perspective. And I want to look at three specific things that we can find that illuminate and open up this text for us. 
The first is that Christ gives his church shepherds. Then secondly, Christ sets forth their qualifications. And then thirdly, Christ himself defines their calling. So we'll begin with the first point that, that Christ gives his church shepherds. Now, the point ought to be obvious as we come to the text here, because the structure of the church that the church at Ephesus that Paul is writing to Timothy about, the structure of that church has been in place for a, a long time. Uh, clearly, uh, five to seven years earlier, at least five to seven years earlier, when, when Paul makes his last visit and calls for the elders of Ephesus to join him at Miletus, that structure was already in place. The elders were already there. They were functioning. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing. So what Paul is writing to Timothy here isn't starting something new. It isn't beginning something new. It's far more in the manner of rehearsing and repeating what the church has already been taught, what the church ought to know, but apparently the church is slipping away from some of these things. Uh, perhaps that's why we've earlier had to deal with the spiritual warfare involved in the church for Timothy uh, in terms of the bad teachers and bad teaching. So Paul is writing here to bring the church back into line. It's very much the epistle of 1 Timothy is a corrective kind of an epistle. Uh, and, he, and he points out that this is Timothy's primary job. Your job, Timothy, is to bring the church back into line, bring the church back to function the way it's supposed to function, address the things that need to be addressed, repair the things that need to be repaired. The church has to be led back into its pattern of right conduct in order to protect the church's purpose. It's the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So verse one, what Paul says here, already has a tremendous amount of context for the church at Ephesus. So here is what the church already knew, that the term elder and then the term overseer, which in the King James tradition would be bishop, and then the word shepherd, which in older translations are sometimes translated pastor, that all of these three, these three terms all describe the same leadership role in the church. They are interchangeable terms. Now, going back to the Acts 20 passage, we see this because in verse 17, Paul calls for the elders of the church. And then in verse 28, he says that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. And then these elders who are overseers are to care for the church. But that's simply the verbal form of the word to shepherd. And the rest of the New Testament shows the same interchangeability of these three terms, these three ideas, elder, uh, overseer, and shepherd. Here's an example. Uh, the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. He says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now note, as an apostle, he considered himself a fellow elder. That's important. And a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Then he goes on to say, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. It's the same set of words, elders, shepherd, overseer. Whether it's in the noun form or the verbal form, it's the same set of three Greek words. Now, this is the first thing that the Ephesian elders, the Ephesians understood when Paul writes these words to Timothy. Now, there's the second thing uh, that the Ephesian church understood, and that is this. 
there's to be more than one elder in the church, more than one elder in the church. In fact, the church at Ephesus had a plurality of elders, a group of elders. Uh, we sometimes refer to that as a board of elders. Uh, it's even better to consider them a team of elders. Uh, that is men who are going to be working and laboring and serving together. So the apostle Paul Peter shows this when he uses the words in his first Peter five passage, the elders among you. He doesn't say the elder that is over you or the elder that is with you or the, the elder that is among you, but the elders that are among you. And the key idea is that it is the elders who are to lead the people of God. The role of the elder is never a solo position and it's never a solo job. It's not a job for just one person, one man. It's a team based and shared leadership. Now, if you know anything about American churches and, and many denominations throughout the world, uh, this is not the necessarily common pattern at all. Uh, it's far more common to see uh, churches around the world where there's one elder who's designated the minister or the pastor, just one who has the primary shepherding responsibility to oversee the church. And, and we would say that that is less than biblical. We would say that that's a departure from the divine design that Christ has, in fact, given shepherds to the church, elders to the church, overseers to the church, that in any and every church, there's to be a plurality of elders, a team of elders who are called to that position. Now, a third aspect of Christ giving shepherds to the church, we can locate specifically in verse one. And, and this appears to be one of those corrective things that I've mentioned that Paul is calling Timothy to do. In verse one, he's pointing out that to aspire to be an elder, to, to aspire to be an overseer is a good thing. Now, that was probably an important reminder. We've got to remember that Timothy has been charged very hard, very strongly with going hard against the wolves and the twisted teachers against the class of bad teachers. And it's just possible that the reputation of being a shepherd and teacher has suffered in some respect. Now, we all know this. We know that the, 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 the profession of being an attorney is a good profession. And yet we also know that um, um, if you want to talk about a profession that really is considered somewhat questionable, you can talk about the field of attorneys. It doesn't take many bad attorneys to make the profession of attorneys look rather uh, questionable. Well, the same thing was possibly going on here, that because of the bad teaching that, that Timothy was going to have to correct, there is this, this reticence for anyone to step forward to want to become an elder, to want to become one who's going to be responsible for teaching within the church. So specifically, the Apostle Paul calls it here a noble task. Other translations will call it a good work or a fine work. And to add to that emphasis, to, to strengthen it, Paul connects it to a trustworthy, a faithful saying. It's a faithful saying. It's a trustworthy saying that to aspire to become an overseer is a good thing. It's a noble task. It's a good work. Now, you see, putting this into the category of a faithful saying connects it to what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 15. This faithful saying, it's a trustworthy saying worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So the church at Ephesus knows that Christ has given shepherds to the church and that if any man aspires to become a shepherd, it's a noble, good, 
virtuous calling that he's aspiring to, that it's really serious ministry business because of the fierce wolves and the twisted teachers that are attacking the church and subverting the truth. Now, the second point is that uh, in this passage would be that Christ himself sets the qualifications for those who would be overseers, those who would be elders within the church. Now, that's what Paul is doing in these seven, seven verses for the most part. And if you remember, as we read through them, what, what Paul focuses upon is far more of the nature of what an elder is to be in terms of his character rather than what an elder is supposed to do in terms of his function. The emphasis is upon being the right kind of person in terms of one's moral character. And further, what Paul writes here, we need to know, is far from being an exhaustive description. Other parts of the New Testament would add to the picture here. Even other parts of First and Second Timothy would add to what an elder and a shepherd and an overseer is to be like in terms of qualifications. But certainly the things that Paul writes here must be looked at as necessary conditions. Uh, they're not everything that an elder ought to possess, but anyone who would aspire to be an elder or a shepherd must at least meet these qualifications. They're essentially necessary uh, to the calling to being an elder. Now, as sort of a helpful device to teach this or to, to help us to see it better, uh, I want to put these qualifications here into uh, five categories. These are my categories. Someone else might organize them differently, but I think they're helpful to see uh, what is going on here in terms of Paul's description. Now, we don't have time to look at each of them exhaustively, so I have to treat them in somewhat of a summary kind of fashion. I would say the first category that we ought to note here would be preconditions or prequalifications or what we might call prerequisites. In other words, uh, a man shouldn't aspire to be a shepherd. He shouldn't seek to be an elder if he doesn't already meet these qualifications. So Paul gives us three. Uh, the first would be that of being a male. And Paul has established that in chapter two, uh, specifically when he talked about what is restricted to women and that the women can teach generally, uh, they are restricted from uh, teaching in a manner that exercises specific authority. And we noted that, therefore, that teaching authority is restricted to those who essentially are called to be elders. And so you've got to be a man, you've got to be a male in order to become an elder in the first place. Uh, secondly, though, if you look down to verse 6, you'll see that it, it's not a recent convert. Uh, there's a danger of conceit. Think about this for a moment. Uh, how often has the Christian community promoted an athletic celebrity or a movie star celebrity <clears throat> to a very high profile uh, very soon after the person has become a Christian? And uh, we've seen cases where when that is done, these people crash and burn. Uh, the conceit that can come from thinking they're that important to the kingdom of God as a recent convert uh, can be deadly to their spiritual life. The devil can use that to bring them down. Uh, thirdly, though, elders must have a good public reputation as well. So that's stated in verse seven. And you might think of this this way. I'll say, so you want to become an elder. Uh, do you have any skeletons in the closet? Uh, you don't have a past criminal record that nobody knows about, do you? Uh, you don't have some questionable business practices that someone might know about. 
the point is, is that to be an elder, you, you really have to have uh, a, a good reputation, especially from the time that you became a Christian. It isn't that someone who has gone to prison can never be an elder. It isn't someone who one time had bad questionable practices, business practices, couldn't become an elder. They would have had to address those things in such a way that even the public would understand that they've paid their dues, they've repented of those things, their character is now where it needs to be. So elders need to have a good public reputation. We go on to the second category. We might call this category family life. Paul speaks to a few things here with respect to family life. And the first is verse two, husband of one wife. Now that phrase has generated books. Uh, people have, have raised all sorts of questions about what does that really mean? Does that mean you have to have a wife? Uh, in the ancient church, sometimes that was uh, basically thought, yeah, you have to have a wife. Well, did that change during the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church? No, you shouldn't have a wife. It's, it's rather strange how this has been treated. But we know that Paul was unmarried. So was Timothy. So it doesn't mean that you have to be married. Uh, does this mean you can't be divorced and remarried? Well, no. Uh, there are biblical grounds for divorce. There's biblical grounds for remarriage. So someone could be divorced and remarried. No, that's not what it's talking about. Rather, the simple and direct understanding is this. If a man is married under the conditions of being married, he must be biblically and lawfully married to only one wife. Now, in the New Testament world, uh, bigamy and polygamy were practiced. This, was ex this would exclude any man who happened to have more than one wife. It also eliminates uh, how some uh, people during this time lived together as man and wife, but they weren't formally man and wife. They weren't lawfully, properly married, either culturally or biblically. So it's really a statement that a man must be moral in this area of his life, that he must live in accordance with the sexual morality of the Bible in every way. Uh, then a second characteristic, verse 4. A good manager of his household, this speaks to family life again, a good manager of his own household, including what we would call obedient children. The idea is that the home and the family life provide a good indicator of how a man is going to function as an elder. And verse five puts it this way. If he cannot take care of his own family, his own family life, how will he properly take care of the church? That there is a definite correlation between a man being a good husband and one who properly manages his family and household and how he's going to function as an elder within the church. The category three we could call sort of a lifestyle category. Paul mentions in verse two, hospitality, being hospitable, the practice of hospitality. Now, let me mention something here. Uh, there's a definite context here in the biblical world. Uh, during the Greco-Roman period, during the New Testament period of time, uh, increasingly, there were uh, people who Christians who were persecuted, who were driven away from their homes, uh, as they were at the beginning of the church. Uh, uh, many believers in, in, in Jerusalem were, were driven out, were scattered. So it was the responsibility of Christians generally, but elders in particular, to take these uh, sort of vagabond Christians, traveling Christians at the time, enter their homes to take care of them uh, during the time that they might need to reside there before they might move on. And it was also the case that, that many of those who were called to the ministry were itinerant, that is, they were evangelists and church planters going around from place to place. 
And so elders particularly were called to open up their homes to house them during the time that they might be visiting and ministering in their own churches. It has its implications for us today, too, that we as elders need to have a definite hospitality toward people within our church family and toward others. But then another lifestyle characteristic here is what Paul mentioned in verse 3. He says of elders, overseers, that they not a drunkard, or as some translations say, not addicted to much wine, not given to drunkenness. Well, this indicates specifically a lifestyle that is out of control. But further, remember this, elders practically speaking, need to be ready 24-7 to respond to any kind of concern within the church. So intoxication is going to be contrary to the readiness to respond to any kind of an emergency that might come up. Really, the application specifically, uh, even to those who, who don't drink uh, anything, would be moderation. Make sure that you are moderate in the affairs of your life not just with personal wine. And I can remember being called up short in this way uh, back in my 30s when I was something of an exercise nut. And uh, on one Wednesday afternoon, I had uh, pretty much exhausted myself at the gym, which uh, meant I got home, ate some dinner, had to go up for our Wednesday night evening ministry program and by the time I got home at 9.30 and got into bed, I was exhausted. I mean, I was so worn out because I had really overdone it that day. And at 9.45, I got a telephone call from the ICU at the hospital. And I had to leave at that point, get dressed, and drive to the hospital and to be with a woman who was in ICU in dire, dire distress. And I didn't get home till close to midnight. Uh, I realized then that I had overdone it, uh, that I hadn't been moderate in my approach to things, and it had really almost kept me from being able to do what I was supposed to do. So lifestyle habits, lifestyle habits need to be those that are proper to the calling of being an elder. Fourth category, spiritual giftedness. It's the only spiritual gift that is mentioned in this list, and it's the ability to teach. But it's significant. It's preeminently significant because that's how the flock is to be fed with the word of God. Shepherds must be able to teach the word of God uh, with clarity, uh, with competency and with faithfulness to the truth. The fifth category would be character virtues. And, and if we notice this list, I've already mentioned this list is is representative. It's not exhaustive, but they're vital and necessary moral virtues. So in verse two. Uh, Paul speaks about being above reproach or blameless. Uh, then he goes on to speak about being sober-minded, which means clear-headed in our thinking, such that our judgment is not easily clouded. Uh, Self-controlled, which means we're never going to be rash in our actions or our thoughts. We don't fly off the handle. We don't get easily distressed. Respectable, that is, our, our behavior is going to be dignified, worthy of people looking up to. In verse 3, he says, violent, uh, not violent, but gentle, that almost doesn't require much comment. Uh, not quarrelsome. This is a really important characteristics because I've known a number of elders, um, pastor elders and ruling elders, who've been quick to, to jump onto things, quick to the verbal fight. And this would tell us that this is not right. We should not be quarrelsome. We should really be very patient because we're told in Scripture that uh, anger never produces the righteous life that Christ desires. 
And then lastly, not a lover of money, because we know from what Paul is going to say later in First Timothy chapter six, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Now, look at this list and then think of what's not there. You could actually add to this list seven of the fruits of the spirit that aren't mentioned. A love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. You could also go to 1 Corinthians 13 and add various aspects, virtues connected to love that are mentioned there but aren't mentioned here. So the point is this. Paul is painting a picture. It's not an exhaustive picture. It's a targeted picture. It's a picture of a man who is morally and spiritually mature. It's the picture of a man who has been translated out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, into the kingdom of light. His life has been shaped by the power of the gospel. So he no longer conforms to the patterns of this world. He's a man whose mind is being renewed according to the word of God. He's someone who is capable, as Paul says in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock. Careful attention to yourself. Someone who guards his own life morally and spiritually, which enables him then also to likewise keep watch over the people of God to promote and to protect godliness and truth. Now, our last point, Christ defines the calling, the calling that we see presented as those who would aspire to be overseers. Most of what Paul says, as we noted, verses two to seven, focus on the qualifications. But what we would understand about the calling is not anything that's really new to the church at Ephesus. They have already been taught about the calling of of those who are elders and overseers to be preeminently shepherds. So going back to Acts 20, 28, when Paul says to the elders there, pay careful attention to yourself first. Secondly, he says, pay that same attention to the, all of the flock. But then thirdly, he says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The, the verb there, to care for, is the verb to shepherd. That's the key idea. That's the key calling of those who are elders and overseers. It's the calling to shepherd. It's the calling to take care of. Now, that includes everything that a shepherd would do. Uh, think about this. Shepherds are to feed their flock, lead their flock, guide their flock, guard their flock, and protect their flock. And that means this is the main calling of elders. Elders are to shepherd the flock of Christ in this way. Now, the, Ephes the church at Ephesus already knows this because the letter to the Ephesians is earlier than 1 Timothy. So if we were to look at Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, we see what Christ gave to the church in these words. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now we stop right there. We don't have time to reteach what we taught during our Ephesians series about this significant passage. So we have to lay aside the role that is played by apostles, prophets, and evangelists. We have to set them aside and just look at this phrase, shepherds and teachers. Now, I want us to understand that most translations in the past have said pastors and teachers. 
But the ESV has done everyone a, a, a big and huge favor, spiritually, doctrinally a favor here. Going back to the Greek, what does the Greek state? In this phrase, it states shepherd. But also notice the and that connects shepherds and teachers, because that and functions just like a hyphen would in the English. That and joins shepherd and teacher together as a compound idea. It's not speaking to two different categories. It's speaking to one category, a compound idea, one role combining two ideas, uh, the function of shepherd and teaching together in one particular person. That's the calling of the elders. They're called to be shepherd teachers who are to feed the sheep, lead the sheep, guide the sheep, guard the sheep, protect the sheep. And they do this primarily through the word of God. The primary calling of elders is to feed the people of God with the word of God. And that is the significance of the role of elders within the church designed by Christ to keep watch over the flock because of the fierce wolves and the twisted teachers who are attacking the church. Now, if we continue in Ephesians 4, we see that Paul is laying out that the shepherd teachers, the overseers, are to equip the people of God with the word of God, beginning at verse 13. Here's the process and what is achieved by this shepherding ministry until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human, human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So when the shepherds faithfully teach and feed the flock, when the flock faithfully feed on sound words of biblical truth, then they grow up into a mature faith that protects them from fierce wolves and twisted teachers, and they become more conformed to the image and fullness of Christ. Now, I want to say that I believe that's what our own elders here at Providence Reformed Church have done and do and will continue to do. They teach the word of God to our flock. They lead the flock in accordance with the word. They guide the church in accordance with the word, and they guard and protect the church in accordance with the word. And they do this together. We do this together. This is not a solo or single man function. And these are the things that more naturally flow when we're committed to the scripture truth, that Christ defines the calling of those who are to shepherd. Now, to finish, I want to return to the beginning and remind us again, why do we need why do we need to stay committed to the proper and divine design of the church? Well, first, the issue is serious. There are fierce wolves and twisted teachers. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. It doesn't matter how incredibly gifted uh, the ministry of the word may be. Uh, the attack against the church will be constant. Even the great apostle Paul couldn't keep the fierce wolves 
and twisted teachers from arising and therefore depends then upon the significance of the role of the elders that Christ has called shepherds to the church, that God-given design. And so Paul has said to the elders of the church, and all elders must heed this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, that is to shepherd, the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. What God has purchased with his own blood What Christ has shed his blood for, even to the church, demands our most careful attention to the design of the church. And that design begins with godly elders who are overseers of all that the church does, who shepherd the church in the truth of God, that truth that is so necessary because we are the pillar and foundation of that truth, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word and remind us again that uh, the business of the church is your business. The ministry of the church is your ministry and how we conduct that ministry is according to your design that you've given to us. May we be faithful to do so because, Father, we pray that in this world that has lost the truth, You have designated the church of Jesus Christ as the pillar and foundation of the truth. What a weighty responsibility all of us have as Christians. What a weighty responsibility the church has to bear witness to this world. And therefore, what a significant role and responsibility the shepherds of the church have to teach this truth faithfully to your people. May it be so. May we do so. In Jesus' name, amen.